Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we palpate the pulse of science. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition we'll feature bias in science, anosmic flies, and quals on a diet. But first up, here's the news with John Bale and Ian Wolfe. Researchers have found evidence that the wafting aroma of food has an effect on an organism's lifespan, and they've demonstrated that interfering with the fruit fly's sense of smell causes it to live a longer, healthier life. Now, optimistic researchers suggest that certain odors, or drugs that would block us from sensing them, might one day help prevent disease and extend life. In the past decade, scientists have established a clear connection between extremely low-calorie diets and extended lifespans. Studies have demonstrated that yeast, Fruit flies, mice, and even monkeys on these diets live longer than their peers. While the exact mechanism at work isn't yet clear, researchers suspect that a near-starvation diet causes an organism's metabolism to slow down and triggers other changes that evolved to help organisms survive in times when food was scarce. Now scientists say that it might not just be what a creature eats, but also what it smells that has an effect on how long it lives. In one 2007 study, molecular biologist Scott Plechter and his colleagues found that completely eliminating fruit flies' sense of smell caused them to live nearly 20% longer than normal flies. They also found that wafting the smell of yeast, which is a tasty street for fruit flies, towards the flies on a low-cal, life-extending diet hastened the death of those flies. Luckily for them, other scientists had identified a receptor in the group of neurons that enables fruit flies to smell this tasty treat, which signals the presence of a good meal. Plesher then eliminated the fruit fly's ability to smell, while keeping the rest of the olfactory system intact so they could only not smell the tasty treat. Now, even on a standard full-calorie diet, the flies that couldn't smell the yeast lived up to 30% longer than other flies. The research suggests that the absence of this element of the smell may have indicated to the altered fruit flies that food was scarce in the environment, prompting them to snap into survival mode. Oddly, however, the life-extending effect was only seen in female flies. The males gained no such benefit. The smell-deprived female flies also seemed healthier and stronger by several measures. They stored extra fat, produced more offspring, and proved to be more resistant to oxidative stress than normal flies. Now, it'll be interesting to see how this research carries on to human development and life extension. Perhaps there'll be life-extending perfumes that you can wear or life-extending nose plugs. It's like the anti-aging cream, but vaporized. Yes. Quiet sun puts Europe on ice. If you live in northern Europe, a research find is sorry to say that the colder-than-usual winter, like the last one you just had, won't be the last. 
According to the study, the low solar activity that the Earth has been experiencing for the last two years promotes the formation of giant kinks in the jet stream. The effect on the northern jet stream, which normally brings warm winds across the Atlantic into northern Europe, is to effectively block this warmer air from reaching its European destination. As a consequence, cold Arctic air from Siberia invades northern Europe, bringing the temperature down. This study forms a piece in the larger puzzle of how solar activity influences weather. And one might wonder why this only seems to affect northern Europe. Well, it seems that Europe's particular susceptibility is because it sits right underneath the northern jet stream. Two sperms are faster than one, if you're a mouse. A new level of sexual competition has been studied in promiscuous mouse species, where females mate rapidly with different males. Once inside a female, sperm cells can discern and, via structures on their head, literally hook up with their brethren amid the crush of sperm from the other males. It seems that in both species, sperm formed groups which seem to swim significantly faster than the single cells on their own. Also worth noting is that the teamwork lasted just about two hours or less until the sperm reached the egg. Brotherly love ended when individuals became rivals for breaching the egg. It's still unclear whether sperm clustered with relatives in other mammal species, 95% of which are also promiscuous. And just to let you know, there's no evidence right now that human sperm bands together. And I was interested to see with that particular story that they had the sperm glowing red and green. That is true. In which case, you did bring up a good point earlier on that did that seem to affect how fast they go or not? Hmm, not really sure about that. And maybe it can cause a a false rivalry, you know, like separating out clans of green sperm versus red sperm. And what do the female mice think about this? Does it turn them on or does it turn them off? I don't know. Tie-dye vaginas. (laughs) Oh, I kind of think that green means good and go, so. Well, you know, it could be a good nightclub sort of thing in the dark. Um, The other thing, of course, is that there's been an extensive study on what human sperms do when there are promiscuous humans over the long term of evolution and they compete. They don't cooperate. In fact, they go to war. Of a single individual, right? No, no, multiple multiple individuals. individuals. Just like the mice sperm, they can tell sperm from a different male and they fight. So they just grapple the other sperm and prevent it from reaching the egg? Well, humans produce a whole bunch of different kinds of sperm for different types of battle. So we have blocker sperm and fighter sperm and, and all sorts of different sperm for different types of situations. So would it be more beneficial to have a, a higher sperm number in that case? So you've got more sperm to fight and then more sperm to actually get to the egg at the end of the day? Well, apparently men unconsciously change their strategy depending on the circumstances under which they have sex. It's interesting because I know that it, there are species of bats as well that have larger and larger testicles because they, they're very promiscuous as well. And so it, it's kind of bred for this more competitive side of producing sperm. Beat them out by numbers, you mean. That's right. Rather than by tactics. Well, it could also just be sexual selection. Maybe, maybe the lady bats are into that look. All they need to do is now is glow. Haven't we all wanted to get the heads red? of people who believe in other people with magical powers? Well, it's finally been done. At the Aarhus University in Denmark, Uffe Schott and his colleagues turned to Pentecostal Christians who believe that some people have divinely inspired powers of healing, wisdom and prophecy. They put them in a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner. They scanned the brains of 20 Pentecostalists and 20 non-believers while playing them the recorded prayers of someone who is believed to have divinely inspired powers of healing. The volunteers were told that six of the prayers were read by a non-Christian 
six by an ordinary Christian, and six by a magical healer. In fact, all of them were actually read by ordinary Christians. Only in the devout volunteers did the brain activity monitored by the researchers change in response to the prayers. Parts of the prefrontal and anterior cingulate cortices, which play roles in vigilance and scepticism when judging the truth and importance of what people say, were deactivated when the subjects listened to a supposed healer. So what they're saying is that these charismatic leaders, the ones who pretend to have the magic powers, can actually hack the brains of believers. Activity diminished to a lesser extent when the speaker was supposedly a normal Christian. Schott says this explains why certain individuals can gain influence over others and concludes that their ability to do so depends heavily on preconceived notions of their authority and trustworthiness. The non-Christians did not have these parts of their brains turned off by the charismatic healer. It's not clear whether the results extend beyond religious leaders, but Schott speculates that brain regions may be deactivated in a similar way in response to doctors, parents and politicians. And a paper highlighted by the Annals of Improbable Research, www.improbable.com. Micro-airplane propelled by a laser-driven exotic target. This was published in Applied Physics Letters, and the research is from the Tokyo Institute of Technology. We propose a propulsion concept to drive a micro-airplane by laser that can be used for observation of climate and volcanic eruption. And basically, because it was very light, they decided to demonstrate the concept with a paper micro-aeroplane driven by a 590 millijoule, 5 nanosecond pulse, yttrium-aluminium garnet laser that fired from behind. Laser-propelled, paper aeroplanes. Give me the grant now. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. It's the sound of science. The sound of science. Science. Next up, here's Mark West talking to Jonathan Webb of Sydney University about the study that he and Stephanie O'Donnell conducted on Call's conditional culinary cane toad tastes. Okay, well, the, the northern quoll was once very common across northern Australia, um, but in the last two decades, it suffered a, a pretty major decline due to probably changes in uh, fire regimes, pastoral activities, and so on. So the, the quoll had actually declined in numbers and geographic range before toads came on the scene, but quolls are generalist predators, so they'll pretty much eat um, anything that's small enough that they, that, that they can overpower, so they'll eat um, insects, small vertebrates, they love frogs in the wet season, and of course they attack cane toads, um, but they don't have any physiological resistance to cane toad toxins, so when they encounter big toads, they basically 
get a fatal dose um, and, they, and they die quite rapidly. So what researchers found when COVID started invading um, was basically quoll populations were going extinct um, and that happened in Kakadu National Park in 2003 um, and 2004. So we knew that quolls were really in trouble um, they were declining before toads came on the scene, but toads were definitely the final nail in the coffin for them. And I guess uh, Australian native animals don't have any immunity to cane toads because they're introduced. That's right. There's, there's some snakes that have come into Australia via the Asian land bridge, and, and those animals that have um, evolved in Asia with toads, they have immunity to cane toad toxins. So things like the keelback snake, slaty grey snake... A lot of the birds can deal with toads because a lot of birds migrate between Asia and Australia. So most birds um, are okay, but most snakes and most varanid lizards, goannas, um, are not okay. They, they just don't have that um, evolutionary uh, history with toads. And, and quolls fall into this basket too, of course. And so your study was, was looking at uh, conditioned taste aversion. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, look, look we're... We're really lucky with this study. The, the study was actually done by my honours student, Stephanie O'Donnell, who worked with the, um, the keepers at the Territory Wildlife Park, and, and they were kind enough to let us work there because they'd established a captive breeding program basically to safeguard the, uh, the quolls um, from, from extinction, and, and some of those quolls actually were translocated to islands um, to safeguard their future. So we were able to work with the Territory Wildlife Park, and... Um, Basically, taste aversion, what it does is if you've ever been um, sick from food poisoning, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. But when you get sick from uh, eating food that contains toxins that makes you ill, uh, basically a very strong signal goes from your stomach to your, to your brain. And the next time you smell that food, you just can't go through with eating it because you get that very strong signal that says, hey, I remember that that food made me crook last time, I'm not going to go near it. So that's basically how taste aversion works. And there have been some uh, animals in Australia that already have a, a taste aversion to cane toads. Are they sort of evolving like this? Well, I've done some work on um, small planigales, which are basically miniature quolls. They're about 8 grams in body mass, so they're pretty tiny. They look just like a mouse. Um, until you look closely and then you, you see their teeth are different, they've got a pointier snout and so on. But basically, small um, dasyurids like planigales and dunarts, they can tackle small toads and because of the way they handle the small toads, they basically grab them by the snout and start chewing on them snout first and they miss the poisonous parotid glands that contain all the toxins. So they start chewing on the toad's snout and they get a little bit of uh, toxin and basically they get sick and they stop eating it um, before they get a fatal dose. So those animals learn very quickly that toads are nasty, they get sick, they recover, and then they stop eating uh, toads. And so in your study with quolls, how did you, uh, how did you try and get them conditioned to, uh, to not attack uh, the cane toads? Okay, well, what, what Stephanie was doing um, for her honours project was... We, we we talked about it and we thought, well, look, you know, the small dasyurids can learn if they encounter these small toads, which are much less toxic than large toads because um, the toxin content of toads goes up almost exponentially. As the toads get bigger, they, the 
the toxin level increases. So we thought, well, what if what if we try and train quolls to avoid toads by by giving them um, little toads? Uh, possibly they'll learn uh, to avoid them. So that that was the plan. So Stephanie started some trials where she fed uh, the quolls small non-toxic toads to see if they'd learn. And some of them did learn to avoid um, toads, but uh, most of them unfortunately didn't learn to avoid the toads as food. Uh, and she was working with adult quolls, which are obviously much bigger than the planigales that I'd work with. So we, we, we hit a bit of a stumbling block there. So what, what, did, you, what did you find in the end? The, were the toads that, uh, that did learn to avoid the cane toads, did they end up having a survival advantage? Yeah, well, look, look, I've got to, I've got to butt in here and just say what what we did next because we 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 weren't able to train the quolls by just giving them a small toad. So what we came up with was we added a nausea-inducing chemical to a small dead toad, and we fed the quolls that prey item. And uh, what Stephanie found when she did that was that the quolls happily ate the uh, small dead toad with the nausea-inducing compound, and they got uh, a little bit ill and then they subsequently avoided live toads so that worked really really well um, and uh, the next thing she did of course was put radio collars on the quolls and monitored their survival in the wild. And did they survive? Yes yeah, so well that was a really really um, encouraging um, part of the whole project was when Steph tracked the, uh, the we called them toad smart quolls because they were happy to leave toads alone. These quolls would encounter big toads in the field after they were released, and, and we were watching some of these quolls, and they'd, they'd, you know, they'd see the big toad hopping along, and they'd run over to investigate it. But as soon as they sniffed it, they'd just leave the toad alone, and they had much higher survival than quolls which hadn't been trained to avoid toads. It's, I was in, in reading your paper, I was astounded at the how quickly the uh, the toad naive, so the the quolls that didn't know about to- uh, about the toads, how quickly they died in the wild after you after you released them. The cane toads are very threatening to them, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Look, that was that was the sad part about the study. We, you know, we we needed to to find out whether toads were, um, you know, really were responsible for for causing this massive reduction in quoll numbers. Um, all the evidence was pointing that way. But you're, you're absolutely correct. Within Sometimes two hours, these uh, toad-naive quolls would, would meet a cane toad and um, unfortunately they'd attack it and uh, get a fatal dose of toxin. Um, so I think that's, that's probably what happened when cane toads invaded. Although, although we don't have you know, observations of quolls attacking toads from those studies, I think this study sort of reinforces just how bad toads are for quolls. And what about a, a, a difference between the sexes? You found a difference between uh, male and female survival rates. Yeah, look, that was really, really interesting. I think I think it it shows that uh, you know males, especially young males, are pretty pretty reckless. And uh, so it's the same across species, by the sounds of it. Then. Yes, yes, very similar to uh, young male humans. You know, they're prepared to take risks. They you know they drive cars fast and all that sort of thing. Well, young quolls male quolls are pretty much the same. They're prepared to tackle much bigger prey than uh, females of the same age. So, so what Stephanie found was these, these young male quolls would, uh, were the ones that tended to have a go at a big cane toad, um, whereas the females were much more cautious. So, um, which is actually good news when you think about it because um, you know, the females are the ones that are breeding and they live longer than the males. So 
being cautious is actually not a bad thing for females. What do you think we could uh, we could do about this? We can't capture all the quolls and uh, and condition them. We uh, we need to need to sort of do something on a mass scale. What what might be possible? Do you think? Well, what what um, Professor Shine and myself and our students are, um, are looking into now is we're we're trying to come up with a cane toad aversion bait that we could actually put out there in the field ahead of the toad invasion. So um, what we're hoping is if we can get a bait that basically trains predators to avoid toads and we can deploy that ahead of the cane toad front, predators will learn that toads are nasty before the toads invade. Now, what that might do is not only protect the predators from toads when they invade, but it will allow those predators to keep breeding so that their offspring will grow up in a world where there's lots of little toads rather than lots of big toads because the problem is the big toads are the really toxic ones that kill the predators whereas the smaller metamorph toads have much less toxin in them um, compared to the bigger toads. So for example smaller quolls if they grow up in a world where there's lots of small toads uh, they may actually get a learning encounter rather than a fatal one. I was astounded to read on your website that big cane toads can kill crocodiles. I had no idea. Yeah, look, that's the other sad story. Um, you know, in the Victoria River, um, which basically, you know, flows from the desert, um, as the toads are invading upstream in that system, they're killing, um, you know, hundreds of, you know, eight or nine foot long freshwater crocodiles. Um, it's really tragic, yes, but um, they're they're one of the other predators that has uh, suffered serious population declines in some areas uh, after toads invaded. And do do you think this technique would work across other species? Uh, crocodiles might be might be difficult, I guess, but uh, do you think that this conditioned taste aversion might work across larger species than quolls? We we're hopeful that um, it may work for some predators. Um, we're hoping that it will work for goannas. Um, one of our graduate students from the University of Sydney, Sam Price Rees, has been trialling the technique with go, uh, with blue tongue lizards, um, and she's had some success at training blue tongues to avoid toads. So we're still in the early stages, but we're hoping that um, the technique might work for goannas, some blue tongues, probably not freshwater crocodiles. It's going to be hard to um, get them to take baits, but certainly uh, most of the monitor lizards will take baits um, that are placed in the field. So we may have a chance of training some of those animals to avoid cane toads. So it's it's quite interesting that we're, we're kind of stuck with cane toads now. We, we need to adapt to them. Yeah, look, I, th- I think... Um, I think everyone realises that um, it's really difficult to control cane toads, you know, despite, you know, the, the massive community effort and it's great that people have had a go at it. Um, they haven't been able to uh, slow down the spread of cane toads and it's really hard to eradicate them because, you know, one toad can lay 20,000 eggs. So if you don't collect all the toads from an area, if you miss a couple, you've got... Uh, females breeding again and, and the problem starts again. So I think we are probably stuck with toads at least for the next uh, decade or so until, you know, maybe maybe someone out there can come up with a, a method for controlling toads, but I, I, th- I think it's still probably a long way away. 
We have the mountains and the forests and the rivers and the valleys and the natural resources they contain. We have the natural resources, but the theme of my discourse is just how long will those resources all remain? If we study conservation and practice conservation, there's no doubt that it will keep our nation strong. It's my earnest observation that the anti-population join the chorus of the conservation song. With scientific crop rotation and the proper irrigation, we can stop our soil from washing down the drain. We can increase reforestation and reduce the conflagrations that are burning up the trees that do remain. If we study conservation and practice conservation, there's no doubt that it will keep our nation strong. It's my earnest observation that the entire population join the chorus of the conservation song. We have to find the right solution for the problem of pollution that is poisoning the water and the air. And it's appropriate to mention that an ounce of flood prevention would be worth a pound of after-flood repair. If we study conservation and practice conservation, there's no doubt that it will keep our nation strong. It's my earnest observation that the anti-population join the chorus of the conservation song. And practice conservation There's no doubt that it will keep our nation strong It's my earnest observation That the anti-population Join the chorus of the conservation song And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe, Mark West, and John Bell. Diffusion has been produced by Victoria Bond in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. <laughs>